the Mike Tomlin Game Day Podcast with Steelers Digest Editor Bob Labriola. Okay, Coach, I'd like to start today with a couple of things you said during your news conference on Tuesday. Uh, the first was when you were asked about Kenny Pickett. You said, procedurally, I like what I see from him, and usually when a guy procedurally is in the right spot, the performance soon follows. What procedure were you referring to? The process of readiness, uh, his commitment to work, uh, what he does in the classroom, what he does on the grass, um, what happens on the days of the week that we're not in stadiums playing. Uh, he has a very mature and professional approach. Um, he's willing to do more than most, um, and, and that's always an asset for those that do. Um, that always turns up in play. I've just been in the business long enough that I have an extreme level of comfort uh, in seeing that. I've seen it repeatedly um, over a long period of time. Those that put in get out. There's no secrets in our business. You used the, you have used the term football justice. Is that the same thing? It, absolutely. You create your fortune uh, in our business. Another thing you said last Tuesday was, offensively, we have to get our mojo back. Now, you've never been someone who believes there's anything mystical about what happens or doesn't happen in a stadium, good or bad. So, you know me, I had to look up what mojo meant. Oxford defined it as a magic charm, talisman, or spell, a magic power. What did you mean by mojo? It was a means of avoiding the question for me. Um, Some things you just can't talk about. Um, we're not performing as well as we would like, and it just simply requires more work. But when you get in press conference settings, they always think of something that you can talk about or something that's tangible. They want to hear what's new and different and shiny and appealing. And sometimes it's just shut your mouth and keep working. And so sometimes I provide a little color and an effort to help them do their jobs, but I meant absolutely nothing by it. Uh, we got to play better, so that means we have to coach better. we got to prepare better. Um, we got to step into a stadium with confidence, and we got to produce the plays that are born out of that process. And sometimes um, you don't have the success that you want, um, and if you don't believe in your process or the people that you're working with, uh, you're subject to change and you're continually in transition. Um, we're comfortable with the pieces in place. We don't like the end result. Uh, we're going to keep our mouths shut. We're going to absorb the questions, the criticisms, et cetera, and we're going to work harder, and wait for our next opportunity. As the head coach, you're the guy with the red challenge flag in your pocket. When you, What are you seeing or looking for to start thinking about whether to challenge a play? A lot of things. Um, you know, I have in-stadium information that comes via jumbotrons. Uh, I have my eye, some of the things, particularly those that happen on our sideline, I see. And then I have coaches in the booth who have a different perspective coupled with technology up there. Um, but sometimes all of those variables are mute, and sometimes, uh, particularly when people are at working at pace, you just simply a play is so significant, you want confirmation that they earned it. And, and particularly in the first half of a game, a timeout might be worth that. Um, if time is of the essence, you don't have enough information, if there's a lack of clarity, um, if they're working at pace, and you simply don't want to let that moment pass, field positioning, points, what have you, um, those are the variables that come into the decision-making process. Do you find over the course of this procedure you get talked into or out of things, or is it pretty much what you really think? You know, it, you can perceive it as talked into and out of. I'm not in the booth, and so they're providing me information. Um, I'm not in control of the jumbotron, so what I see on the jumbotron might influence me. 
Um, I'm absorbing a lot of information in a short period of time and making decisions based upon that. Okay, so when you make the decision to drop the challenge flag, the referee comes over to you. What's that conversation about? You know, it's it's really informal. It doesn't mean much because once you throw the challenge flag, you're essentially challenging all components of the play. I'm just trying to help them from an from a timing standpoint and tell them the component of the play that I think is faulty. Um, but it requires no discussion. Uh, once you throw the challenge flag, all components of the play are up for review. And so it really requires no discussion. I'm just trying to help them do their job in a timely manner. So it's never a situation where what you might say to him about what you are disagreeing about then um, kind of puts the kibosh on whether the challenge is a success or not. No, once a challenge flag hits the ground, all components of the play are under review. Okay, so are there certain kinds of plays, I don't know, like forward progress, spotting of the ball, as one example, that are unlikely to be won on a challenge just because they are unlikely to be won? I mean, let's be honest, man. They're all unlikely to be won. Um, There's a posture um, within the the ranks that, you know, um, you better be pretty sure. Um, But – you know, the unwritten rules in our space, um, line the gain and things of that nature, forward progress, uh, you better have some clear evidence. And most of the time those things happen in piles and so forth, and so you're running a risk. But, again, sometimes a line the gain or a moment might be worth that risk, uh, particularly in the first half of the game. Uh, oftentimes you go into a, you know, first half of the game with timeouts in your hip pocket and so forth. Um, and so those are kind of the variables along the discussion. Uh, T.J. Watt is now the franchise's all-time sack leader with 81-and-a-half, and he got to the top of that list in his 89th NFL game. I'd like to take you back to the prep for the 2017 NFL draft. What do you remember about that process, and what, t- what, and what set T.J. Watt apart from some of the other edge players available that year? First of all, it was an unbelievable edge player draft um, in terms of the talent and um we went around, we looked at a lot of them. You know, we traveled like Kevin and I used to do. And um, the thing that really stood out about TJ is it was no guesswork. Um, schematically, the defensive structure that he was in at Wisconsin um, was very similar to what we do here. There was no projection. In the past, we've taken um, college four-down edge people and, and, and transitioned them into stand-up people. Lamar Woodley, for an example. Um, he was doing the exact job in Madison, Wisconsin, that we would ask him to do in Pittsburgh. Uh, schematically similar things, even playing on the left side of the defense. Um, and obviously, you know, he had the DNA component, man, the lineage, and uh, we're just firm believers in in the mindset of people that, that have that exposure. Um, they're not dreaming about the National Football League in the way that others who have farther proximity to it do no it's more of a plan and agenda for them and so um there was a lot of things about him and his profile that made us really comfortable in terms of a high floor and then we met the guy okay um we take him out to dinner the night before his pro day um he is somewhat annoyed by the whole process um he doesn't say much the whole meal he chews with his mouth closed he's polite and really, that's all I needed to know about T.J. Watt, man. Like, he a football lover. He doesn't like the pomp and circumstance. Um, tell him what it is you need him to do. Uh, he's a lunch pail type of a dude. And that was stream- extremely attracted to us. 
you know, Kevin and I are talking um, to his coach in the parking lot after the meal. And we said, man, we don't feel, feel like we get got to know him. And the coach was like, yeah, you pro- you did. <laughs> and and that was our introduction to that flatliner committed, you know, just low-profile personality type that's really conducive to chasing greatness. In terms of how they perform their specialty on the field, how are T.J. Watt and James Harrison similar? And then also, how are they different? They're very similar in their commitment, what they're willing to do. The things that they do off the field in preparation for what you see on the field. Um, how are they different? Um, man, James is a power player. Everything was born out of bully ball. Um, he was a technician, no doubt, not disrespecting um, his commitment to technique. Um, but there was a fear component of his power that produced a lot of his opportunity that you could not deny. Um, and, and so there, there, there's a difference there. Um, very few people play the way that James played, um, the bully component of it. But that's what made him unique. What makes Alex Highsmith a good partner for T.J. Watt? You know, I don't, I, I don't necessarily view it as a partner. I just think what makes Alex Highsmith good. Um, man, there's a guy um, who's doing very similar things that, that, that he did at Charlotte. Uh, he played on the right side of his defense at Charlotte. Um, and he, so he's in a similar space. Um, that's one of the reasons why his spin is so perfected and so, there's so much maturity in that technique. Um, he didn't just start working on that spin when he got here. We saw that spin on his senior tape when he had 15-plus sacks or something at UNC Charlotte. Um, he has a skill set. Uh, he has a commitment to the process. Um, he's learned a lot from TJ just in terms of watching TJ uh, go through his process of preparation. Um, he he has displayed some expertise, man, and he has developed some expertise that, that allows the plays that you see uh, happen. Um, it is not a lightning strike. Um, this guy is a hard worker. Um, he's He's got experience beyond his NFL years on that side of the ball and that perspective, and he is honing that craft. Both of those guys, they – take occasional breaks during the game, breathers, however you want to term it. Um, when, when that happens, is it a good thing if they come off the field together? Because that means then they're rested and then they can go back on together, maybe for the weighty downs or those kinds of things. Or would your preference be to always have one of them on the field? It's week to week based on circumstances, to be quite honest with you. Uh, Marcus Golden is a veteran player. He's heavy-handed. He's strong. Uh, he's experienced. Uh, he's a rundown substitute, if you will. Herbick is a guy that's a flamethrower. He's a young and talented guy. He lacks experience. We maybe don't necessarily want him playing a lot of rundown football, and so he's maybe more of a pass-down substitute. Um, maybe it has something to do with the number of plays played in the subsequent drive by either man or by both. And so it's a lot of variables in that discussion. If you're talking ideally, sure, you want one of those guys on the field at all times, but you don't necessarily have control over that at all times. Maybe the previous drive was a 13-play drive and both guys played a substantial amount of snaps. It might warrant that you start the next drive with 44 and 51, for example. 
Um, and then you send both out there on the first possession down of that drive. And so there's a lot of variables. There's circumstantial variables. Uh, there's a snap count component to it. Uh, but in a blanket sort of way, just answering your question on the surface level, ideally, certainly, you want one of those guys on the field at all times. Tonight it's the Las Vegas Raiders, a team you faced last Christmas Eve. Uh, the big change in their lineup is Derek Carr, the quarterback, is gone, and Jimmy Garoppolo is now the starter. Uh, how are they different? How are the Raiders different offensively because of that change? I would imagine they're able to play more to the vision of Coach McDaniels. You know, uh, Garoppolo was drafted by New England uh, and grew up in that space. Um, coach McDaniels, man, was obviously grew up in that space as a coach, and there's some values and, and approaches to business that were probably learned by both there that they commonly share. And so I would imagine – um, the change probably produces more um, play that's aligned with the vision of the play caller. And so what is that? Um, risk management or minimal, minimizing risk, and that can be displayed in the fact that they haven't been sacked in two football games, for example. Um, and so that's what it's about. Um, Derek Carr obviously is a proven good player as is Jimmy Garoppolo. Sometimes it's a relationship component to this thing. That's a component of decision-making. And from the outside looking in, I'm just speculating. I would imagine the change, a component of the change had to do with relationships and perspective and um, perspective based on uh, shared experience in New England for, for both that play caller and that quarterback. That's the Mike Tomlin Game Day Podcast. Subscribe and download new episodes every week and check out all of the other shows we have to offer on the Steelers Podcast Network that's available on the Steelers mobile app, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts.